Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. We need some time machine effects. I don't remember Dylan doing this. Is this a prank? Are you pranking me? (laughs) Also, if you don't do it, you might be like Livy and get caught in the time machine. We time (laughs) machine. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Box Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here with Dara Lynn, Jerusalem Demsis, and we are doing a, another, it's going to be the final Weeds Time Machine episode, at least of our series, uh, but I had a lot of fun with this. Uh, we got a lot of requests to do a lot of other historical moments. There's a lot of great choices out there, a lot of famous moments in American history. Because I'm a little perverse, I'm going to have us do a not famous moment in American policy history. Uh, we are going to be cranking the time machine back to the year 1916, uh, in which the Supreme Court issued a decision, Buchanan v. Wardley, uh, which uh, related to a topic near and dear to my heart, uh, zoning. And they said that you cannot use zoning to enforce racial segregation, which is interesting, both because civil rights was not a big thing in the 1916 era of American politics. We did not see a lot of concern for racial equality. In the decision, as we will see, they actually are like it quite pains to say that like they're still super racist, but they will not allow this zoning provision. And then a few years later, in 1926, we get the village of Euclid v. Amber Realty Company, in which the litigant there tries to say, um, look, like you can't do this zoning against multifamily residences, you know, when they're citing these similar precedents that there's property rights, etc. But the Supreme Court gives a thumbs up to all kinds of exclusionary zoning practices as long as they are facially race neutral. We're, of course, quite familiar with the idea of like facially race neutral policies, nevertheless, having disparate impacts or perhaps having clear discriminatory intent. There's a lot of legal doctrine around that. But the fact that this sort of emerged so early, before the Civil Rights Movement, before the Civil Rights Act, before World War II, means that the land use code actually kind of had this whole system kind of built into it before we started making major policy changes around race and racism in a way that I think is interesting and has left us with a fraught legacy. So we are going to enter the time machine do some jurisprudence. None of us are lawyers, so I think that's probably better, but you never know. Let's go in Jerusalem, I promise. We gotta do the sound effects. Time machine doesn't work without the sound effects. Okay. We're setting the weeds time machine for the middle of World War I litigation. Here we go. Weeds <laughs> One of these days, I'll remember to seatbelt the time machine, but... <laughs> Today's not that day. Matt's fell over. So here we are. We are in Louisville, Kentucky, 1916. A fellow named Buchanan, a white guy, uh, he's trying to sell his house to a black guy named Warley. Uh, They're in Louisville. And Louisville has an ordinance that says that if a majority of residents on a block are white, a black person can't move in to that jurisdiction. So the local court tries to block the sale. There's various lawsuits about it. Uh, The Kentucky Court of Appeals says, yeah, this law is fine. They go to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court 
at this time has two conflicting strands of jurisprudence. Because this is important to understand. This had been explained to me once as like an early civil rights case, but in important ways is not. The Supreme Court in Plessy v. Ferguson and a couple of other related cases at this point had said that segregation is fine that you can maybe do a narrow lawsuit arguing that you haven't been given equal segregated accommodations. But segregation is is great. It's a totally legitimate government function. We're all in on it. Civil rights cases have already happened in which the court largely guts the original Reconstruction era civil rights laws by saying, look, private property owners can do what they want. They also have these other cases that we often shorthand as Lochner, saying that private property rights are really important. They're really into freedom of contract at this point in time. And they're very skeptical of like minimum wage laws and other kinds of regulations. They're saying, look, you have a right to do what you want. And Buchanan's case here is really that. It's a Lochner-style property rights case, not really a racial justice case. And he's trying to say, look, man, it's my house. I can sell it to who I want to. And the Supreme Court agrees with that. I mean, the the one place where they get into, I guess, the racial justice piece is that they say, look, segregation is fine, but we have all these white people in Louisville who have black maids and other stuff like that. So there is no bona fide public interest in this kind of spatial segregation that people are trying to uphold here. And so it's a little hard for me to say that the opinion is like not actually that detailed, but they are basically saying on the basis of housekeepers and nannies that this vision of segregation is kind of bad faith and that Louisville does not have a public security interest. I mean, again, I'm trying to do the opinion, not do my view. They say that like segregated schools or segregated train cars have some public safety benefit or you're trying to prevent miscegenation. Uh, So that's fine, according to them. But keeping black neighbors out, they say, is not legitimate and that property rights um, need to triumph here. Something that's, that's important is that in the sort of lawyer universe, I don't know if it's supposed to, but the tradition is to see this case as an example of bad property rights jurisprudence, that this is part of the pre-progressive reactionary Supreme Court doesn't allow business regulation. And if you say that this is an example of the Supreme Court doing something good, the kind of at least like conventional progressive take is that that's wrong and that this later Euclid case is good, that this is the Supreme Court embracing regulation and modernism. But part of the gimmick of the time machine, right, is that at least at the time, I don't think people understood how this historiography was going to develop. And at a minimum, I'm sure Mr. Warley was probably glad that the Supreme Court let him buy the house and move into this block. And we see that at least at this point in time, there was less residential segregation than there came to be later on. And one of the things that I think is interesting with these cases, because Often, I think people think about civil rights cases as coming into being because, you know, someone just finally gets fed up and they decide to sue. But like William Warley is like an attorney for the NAACP. And this is like clearly a planned enterprise that they've entered into. And often we like learn about this history as just like Rosa Parks was just really tired and she decided not to get up that day. It's like, no, this was like a planned civil rights action that was leading towards creating case law that would eventually change the fundamentals there. But kind of more on the property rights thing, I think it is very obvious here that they're not really trying to weigh in on this question of what rights black people have, especially because the ordinance itself, while it says that, you know, a black person cannot buy a home on a street that has eight out of 10 houses are owned by white people. It also says that white people cannot own homes or buy homes on a street that has eight out of 10 black people. So facially, it's couched in this language of race neutrality. And from a perspective of people who are, you know, probably lying to themselves at some level, but like clearly are in the language talking about segregation like it is some sort of public good and talking about how if there is race mixing, there's going to be the sort of necessary violence that's going to occur from that lynching or other kinds of mobs or riots or things like that. And 
it's interesting, too, because the conception of property rights that comes out of this decision, which is that, you know, property is more than just like what someone owns. It's like includes the ability to acquire it, to sell it, to use it how you want to do. When we think about moving to the 21st century, how people think about property rights now, very much so like you are not allowed to build like an ADU on your property in most of America. You're not allowed to like turn your home into several apartments or anything like that. But what this case is saying is that, of course, you should be allowed to do that. And I think it's really interesting, the evolution of like what we think of when we say someone owns a home has changed drastically from what the Supreme Court is saying now to what they end up saying much later on. The thing that I would note is while it's true that like the jurisprudential history of this is not a civil rights history, like, A, what Jerusalem's saying is important, right? Like, at the time, impact litigators at the NAACP understood that this was a way in which they could get the Supreme Court to embrace a civil rights agenda, which is important because it indicates that there are people who are savvy enough to understand the civil rights implications of the jurisprudence the court makes, which is going to be super relevant when we get to the second ruling we're talking about. But the other thing I would say is that it is, in one important respect, reminiscent of the way we have talked about racism in the civil rights and post-civil rights era. Because the phrasing that the court uses is that the way they characterize the Louisville Ordinance is that it's based on a feeling of race hostility, and that that is unacceptable as a sufficient basis for a law. And that really sounds very similar to the modern post-civil rights kind of mainstream or normy understanding of racism, which is that it's a feeling of racial animus and that obviously animus is not a sufficient reason for a law, but that once it's something that is not about the feelings of individual people, once it's part of a rationalized process to use, you know, some of the language of progressive reformers of the time, then you're sidestepping the whole idea of feelings of racial hostility, which creates an opportunity space when you're using language that is that limited in scope. I think that's absolutely right. It's interesting that, you know, this is part of a litigation strategy because eventually, obviously, where the civil rights movement wants to go 40, 50 years after this is into a lot of regulation of private businesses, right? I mean, this is like the main point of the 64 Civil Rights Act really is to say that hotels and restaurants and other private businesses can't maintain segregation policies. We have a lot of employment discrimination law over the past 50, 60 years. But at this time, they're arguing on this sort of different terrain, right, in which a strong property rights argument serves their purposes. And you see, the justice, it's a unanimous opinion, which I think is worth underscoring because it matters sort of how this goes. I mean, the whole case was set up to have it be a white plaintiff. And it is very much written as a decision that, look, it's the white homeowners' rights who've been violated here. I think that was how the litigators thought they were most likely to win the case. They were cognizant of sort of civil rights benefits that they hoped would flow from it. And the justices, you know, there are great pains to distinguish this from other things that have gone by. And there's just this whole era that I think we don't talk about that much in contemporary society, sort of between this case and Brown, in which um, the NAACP and other plaintiffs bring a lot of civil rights cases that don't question the sort of Plessy precedent. There's one I was reading about where a congressman from Chicago, he's got a first class train ticket, I think, from Chicago to New Orleans. And when the train reaches Kentucky or someplace in the South, they like kick him out of the first class car because he has to go to the colored car. And so he sues and he says, well, look, like they didn't have a first class car for black people. And so they are not upholding the sort of tenets of separate but equal. This is like years and years of litigation. It's not a practical solution to the problem of somebody on a train. Uh, but he wins the case, ultimately, that the railroad essentially can't maintain segregation in the first class passenger car, because it would not be economical to have two of them on every single train. And so it continues to build up this kind of universe in which you chip away at some of the forms of Jim Crow, while leaving intact a lot of de facto 
segregation, either through restrictive covenants, which I think most people have heard a little bit about today, but also they have this other case, Village of Euclid v. Amber Realty Company, which is a similar property rights question, right? It's like, can you tell the Amber Realty Company that they can't build apartment buildings in the suburbs of Cleveland? And the Supreme Court has already said, look, you can't say, well, you can't sell the house to a black person. But the court basically agrees that, like, apartment buildings are so terrible that you absolutely do have a rational basis for saying you have to exclude them. And at some point in the decision, they, like, call multifamily housing, like, a parasite. It's, like, very weird in some ways. But this is just 10 years later, 9, 10 years later, they step away from the kind of hard-edged pro-property rights view, but they open up the door to a lot of pretextual regulation. And one thing that's important, too, to understand that what happens after Buchanan is that the desire for segregation does not go away just because these governments are not able to have explicit racial zoning laws. Some places, like in Atlanta, for instance, they used to have like a white residential district and a colored residential district explicitly in the zoning code. And then they just renamed those R1 and R2 and like keep going. <laughs> like nothing really changes. But more importantly, a lot of this starts moving towards private actors, which I think is actually a really important development. And if it had stayed, I think we'd be living in a very different world because Alison Scherzer is someone who works a lot on these issues and she's an economist at Pitt. And one of the things that she talks about is just that private actors break under a certain level of profit incentive, right? So if you have a black person offering you $50,000 over asking price to break the racial covenant in your neighborhood, you're probably going to take that deal because it's not like the state is going to block you. It requires one of your neighbors to actually sue you and then win that suit and then you know go to all the trouble that that entails. And you don't have to, as the white property owner, deal with any of the racist violence that the black family might face if they move into that neighborhood. So the cost to you is actually not really that high often. And what we see happening when it moves into the private space is there's obviously still a ton of racial discrimination from realtors, from landlords, from white property owners who don't want to, quote unquote, ruin their neighborhood by allowing these kinds of people in and they feel bad about doing that to their fellow white neighbors. But at a certain level, you do see the color line beginning to shift as black people are able to move in. And what Scherzer finds is that they end up paying like an extremely high premium to buy these houses as they're moving into um, racially segregated areas. But, you know, I think what's interesting about what happens with Euclid is that it reinforces a way and creates tools for it to return to government control, which makes it a lot harder to break segregation later on when it's the government doing it versus when you have private actors who at some level will be subject to some desire to make a bunch of money if they can. Right. I definitely think it's worth highlighting, Jerusalem, your first point about like it never goes away. It's not like Buchanan drops and governments all across the South are like, well, damn, guess we can't segregate neighborhoods anymore. We'll just have to like sue and try to get this reversed and twiddle our thumbs in the meantime. The other thing that happens is that because they have to like invent these other ways of doing it, it becomes a little more integrated in the planning process along a trajectory that is like pretty familiar to people who are broadly familiar with like the difference between de facto and de jure segregation and the essence of like northern hypocrisy in the mid 20th century that a lot of professionalized urban planner types start becoming the mechanisms by which cities can create a process that is going to result in residential segregation but that doesn't run them afoul of the Supreme Court's law. And so this is one of those where even though when we talk about Jim Crow, we are talking about a Southern institution, there's no way of getting around the fact that the progressive movement was kind of from the beginning and meshed in this project of preserving higher quality neighborhoods by keeping Black people out. Yeah, so let's take a break. And, and I want to talk about that kind of evolution. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media. Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context. And it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. 
They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com weeds. That's Burrow. B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com slash weeds. So one thing that's interesting to me about all of this is that the Village of Euclid decision, um, which is obviously not like zoning is not the only tool that's used to maintain de facto segregation. And, you know, for a lot of historiography sort of treats this decision, uh, giving the go ahead to single family zoning as part of a broader tradition of the Supreme Court turning away from hard edged property rights jurisprudence and stepping into the sunshine of what would become the New Deal era. Right. But when you look at the ground level history of what happens after they give the thumbs up to zoning, there's a great article called The Racial Origins of American Zoning uh, by Silver. And he talks about things like Charleston, South Carolina. They want in the 20s to sort of shore up segregation in the city. And so they hire a planning consultant, Morris Knowles from Pittsburgh, uh, to help them draw up a zoning ordinance. And, you know, as do all city planners when zoning first comes. In They have a variety of different objectives, like maintaining segregation is not the only thing that they are trying to do in Charleston, but it is one of the things that they are trying to do. And the same is true in Atlanta. Uh, Birmingham hires a city planner from Boston. Uh, so northern sort of progressive technocrats go south to consult with southern cities on how to create legally defensible segregation regimes. And then as great migration dynamics start happening, the knowledge is re-imported into northern cities. And New York's original zoning code was mostly driven by store owners who were trying to maintain like Fifth Avenue is like a nice place for shopping. It was a economics-based discrimination element. But, you know, these same things start coming into play. Uh, Alison Scherzer, who uh, Jerusalem mentioned, has a study of the evolution of zoning in Chicago. You know, and she shows that they move undesirable uses adjacent to the areas where black families are living. And they also try to make it difficult uh, for black families to move into the white areas. And you have this overlapping wedge of things. You know, people fear irregular violence from their neighbors. They have challenges with discrimination from real estate operators. There are covenants. But this is all backstopped by the sort of basic reality that where there's this booming population migrating north and there's money to be made throwing up apartment buildings to rent to the people who are moving to Chicago, there are big parts of the city where you can't build an apartment building. Not exclusively because you're trying to keep black people out, but certainly in part for that reason, because of all this technical expertise that's developed in the 1920s of how to do this in ways that will hold up in court. 
I think what's really interesting about the Euclid case, too, so they find essentially that the city is allowed to tell this realty company that it cannot build the types of things that it wants to build. And often, I think people talk about zoning as something that is preserving land values, making sure that you're like doing something that is going to increase profits for the property owner. But what actually ends up happening, right, is that at least the realty company alleges that with their original use case, the land value is at $10,000 an acre. But if you force them just to use it for residential purposes in the way that the city wants, um, it goes down to $2,500 an acre. And I think this is something that I think is like not intuitive to a lot of people, but the value of the land changes substantially when you tell people that you can't zone specific things on it. So like if you're on like waterfront property and you tell people you can only have one home for every, you know, three acres, you know, you can make a lot less money doing that than if you have even a bunch of homes next to each other who are single family homes and you could rent it to a bunch of different people. And it's not just about the profit incentive for the developer that matters, but it's also just general increase in welfare. There's like a lot more people that can enjoy that waterfront and can enjoy what's going on there. And so I think that like understanding zoning as being a tool with which people are actively regulating the value of the land itself is really important when we're talking about zoning issues today, where people are often concerned that, oh, if you upzone, if you take the current zoning regime and there's a potential to make things denser, it's obviously going to reduce property prices. There's a bunch of research that's now showing that in many contexts, if you actually upzone, you increase the ability for people to make money off their land because you are saying there's a higher value case that could exist in that space. And then, of course, Matt mentioned about discrimination against apartment buildings in particular. I think what's really interesting here is something that I think is still a strain of thought right now is this inability to kind of distinguish between crowding and density. So there's a bunch of problems that are actually happening in a lot of these cities where like you have overcrowded areas predominantly populated by Southern Black who have moved into these places and also first generation immigrants. And because there's a problem of poverty, people are crowding in together in order to afford to live in these cities or in these places that they want to live near jobs or whatever. And of course, they're becoming comes a lot of problems with overcrowding and with also the city failing to provide basic things like sanitation or other public services. And what gets linked in people's minds, which I think is really important here, is that it becomes a link not to poverty or to the fact that you're not providing um, necessary public works, but that it is density in particular that is a nuisance and that is a problem and that needs to be separated. And it's taken as just fact throughout this opinion in Euclid that apartments are a nuisance, a density is a problem, that of course no one could ever disagree with the idea that living in multifamily housing is just a horrible den of iniquity. I think it's worth quoting the like exact rhetoric that they use in the Euclid case. They say, with particular reference to apartment houses, it's pointed out that the development of detached house sections is greatly retarded by the coming of apartment houses, which has sometimes resulted in destroying the entire section for private house purposes. Then such sections, very often the apartment house is a mere parasite, constructed in order to take advantage of the open spaces and attractive surroundings created by the residential character of the district. So they really have, in this interesting way, we've moved out of the racial zoning case into this kind of pure discrimination on the base of the building form. But it's this, like, incredible, like, visceral disdain for people who might live in apartment buildings, which I guess if you want to generously construe that as lacking any kind of racial or ethnic subtext, like that's fine. But like, it only makes it weirder, honestly, that it's like parasites are coming into your neighborhood because they live in like a three-story building with six units or something. It's weird. But I mean, at a time when there was enough commitment to property rights that they were like, despite the incredible levels of racism that were present in American society quite overtly at that time. They were like, no, you can't just have a rule that says no black people can move into the block. But then nine years later, they're like, holy shit, apartment buildings? Like, we got to put a stop to that, right? Like, they're these awful parasites. That's now, like, baked deep into the cake of American land use, right? That, like, in the way there's a kind of presumption that, like, I can't just have, like, toxic gas spewing everywhere, that it's like an apartment building. That's like a pretty special kind of ask here. And cities need to defend themselves against them. Yeah, I think that there are a few ways in which like it's worth kind of pulling back the curtain a little bit and showing how this is never all that far from 
explicit racism and from perpetuating what Jerusalem was talking about in the first segment of like the Atlanta system of just renaming things and hoping that everything will go all right. The first is that you can draw a direct line from this kind of fear of density in its own right and assuming that density is the problem rather than crowding to urban renewal in the mid 20th century, right? Where there's this same kind of assumption that if you just get rid of the bad housing, that people will move. And it doesn't create any need for the government to place those people in better situations or even to like provide opportunities for them to be in better situations. Their obligation ends when they've gotten rid of the kind of festering den of iniquity, which of course implies that it's people's own fault for wanting to live in such a bad place to begin with and perpetuates culture of poverty stuff. The other thing that I think is really important is that while we talk about the relationship between zoning and preservation of property values, in a lot of cases, this isn't a regime based on who can own the property. It's a regime based on who can live on the property. And you can actually, you know, counterfactually imagine a world in which the zoning happens in ways that prevent white homeowners from renting to Black renters and therefore ends up meaning that Black city residents are more likely to own homes. But that's not what happens. What you instead have is a world where the wealth is still accruing to the white people who have moved out and who have subsequently rented their homes to the Black people moving in, which kind of gives the lie to the there goes the neighborhood anti-anti-racist rhetoric of the mid-20th century, that it's not that people are themselves unwilling to live near Black people. It's just that they don't want to reduce the property value of their own homes because other home buyers are going to be racist. And it also ends up becoming a pretty big wedge between black and white homeownership rates, which of course ends up becoming a thing at the end of the 20th, beginning of the 21st century, when that's one of the arguments that subprime mortgage lenders are using to justify hooking black families into terrible mortgage deals. I think one thing that's really important to point out, because I think it's not how people often think about or learn history, is just that Euclid and, and zoning in particular is actually extremely impactful. The Scherzer, as someone mentioned, she has a paper that Matt mentioned about Chicago. And before Euclid happens and before you have these kinds of citywide zoning laws, you have a lot of mixed use going on. You have people living in residential districts where there's also industrial uses and there's also commercial uses. So like people are living in these types of neighborhoods that are pretty common in other places in the world. And there are are clear harms here that the progressives do all articulate, right? Like it is not great to have some kind of like environmental pollutant next to a place where children are growing up at a young age. And I think what's really important about that is that, and I think it's probably like a lesson that a lot of people could take today as well, is that when you are designing policies about things that you think are legitimate problems, you also have to think about how that policy tool is going to be used by people who are bad people <laughs> or how they're going to be used by people who you think are not actively on your side. And while a lot of these progressives like Matt mentioned are directly working to be a part of the project of segregation. A lot of people also were just specifically using zoning, um, at least as they first imagined it, to separate these types of uses. And we're not, I think, fully thinking out through the implications of what would occur when you created this tool that could be used for segregation. And I think what's also important here is that before all of these zoning laws, we see a sharp increase in segregation in the early 20th century. Before that, in many cities, you had black people living in almost every single neighborhood there's like measures that like in Baltimore and every single neighborhood you had black Americans. This is pre-Great Migration. And that a lot of what occurs as the Great Migration happens, as zoning laws get implemented, especially on this citywide level, is that you see segregation actually being put into place by these kinds of policies. I think a lot of times people think about American history. I think they assume segregation was happening the entire time, both segregation of like residential versus commercial and industrial and also segregation in terms of race. But that's actually not true and not what was going on for a lot of our history. Yeah, Trevon Logan and John Parman have a, a study looking at old census records. They can show on a very detailed level that the amount of segregation roughly doubles between 1900 and 1940. 
you know, relatively late in the game. And they also show that it happens in the North and the South, in rural areas and in urban ones. There's a kind of historical urban legend that segregation was the outcome of urbanization, that sort of there had been integrated patterns in the countryside. People moved into the cities and there was a kind of segregation of the dwellings. But that's apparently not true when you look at the kind of block level. I think to what Jerusalem was saying, though, I think the point is that the originators of the pro-zoning jurisprudence, their idea was that it was important to allow localities to use zoning to protect people from harms. And so then people have different ideas about what harms are. And it is true that one harm is smoke from a factory. But like the idea of the harm is left up to the discretion of these planning commissions. And people had a very good faith, like not true, but like genuinely felt view that living near people of a different race and especially living near people who live in apartment buildings was a harm to them. And we see that legacy carried forward today. I was on a plane with a guy, like a real like Texas business guy with a cowboy hat and everything. And he asked me what I was doing. And I said I was going to do a talk on land use policy. And, you know, I was skeptical of regulation. He said, son, you know, you ought to come to Houston someday. I could put a nickel smelting plant right across the street from a school and no one could stop me. And that's not really true. But what is true is that Houston has unusually lax land use regime for the United States, but Houston nonetheless has a very extensive mandatory parking requirement. Right. Because the view is that if I build a building and it doesn't include off street parking, that's going to mean other people might park on the street where you already live. So you are being harmed by my apartment building in much the way that you might be harmed by a nickel smelting plant or another environmental toxin. And that's not. I don't know, like if you've ever parked a car in the street, it's like it's not false that there is a certain harm to you of other people also trying to park on the street. But if you're thinking about environmental policy in like a macro way, right, like regulating extra parking is not a pro-environmental policy, right? Like apartment buildings are more energy efficient. The less parking you have, the better it is. You'll have more people walking, using transit, bicycling. You don't need to use like coercion to like force people out of their cars. You can just let things sort of fall where they may. But the paradigm that's enshrined by Euclid is that you can zone out harms and that the locality gets to decide based on fairly picayune considerations, like what the nature of the harm is, right, rather than a more centralized definition of like what the harms are. So like, I don't want these kids going to my kid's school. That is a harm that people in effect zone against. I don't want it to be harder to get a parking space is a harm. But from like a social standpoint, it's not bad for people to attend integrated schools. It's not bad for people to ride the bus, things like that. And so we get this kind of conflict. We should take another break, though. Support for the weeds comes from Hydro. Finding the time to exercise can be hard. But with the Hydro Rower, finding time for a 20-minute full-body workout can be a piece of cake. Hydro is a state-of-the-art, low-impact home rowing machine that's actually designed by rowers. Hydro caters to all fitness levels, and their classes are taught by Olympians and world-class athletes alike. Eric Maxwell, from the business side of things here at Vox, got to try it out. Here's what he thought. The Hydro definitely felt like a nice workout. It felt challenging, intuitive. It kind of felt natural without being too strenuous. It was just nice to have a menu of options to find something super customized and just make it feel fun. This spring, you can join the growing rowing community at Hydro. You can head over to hydro.com and use code WEEDS to save up to $400 off your Hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W.com, code WEEDS, to save up to $400. Hydro.com, code WEEDS. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge... 
that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Today, this is all worth bringing up because we have some reforms in this regard coming in big cities and sort of pushback against single family zoning. And that is very, you know, there's a classic libertarian critique of zoning and work done by Ed Glazer, other right of center people on this subject. It is the red states that tend to have laxer land use regimes. But I mean, Jerusalem, I know you've covered a lot that sort of racial justice considerations, I think, have motivated a lot of people in blue states and blue cities to rethink some of this. And I do think historically, at least, like that is correct. That's like the right way to look at the origin of these systems and potentially a good reason to look at revising them or pulling them down. I think just pulling on the thread that you ended with last segment is this idea of like what happens with nuisances and what happens with nuisance law in general. And I think that the existence of this kind of case law leads to like absolutely absurd behavior. I wrote the story a while back about how essentially there's a city, Maplewood, Missouri, where they essentially said that you have to have like an occupancy permit in order to live in that place. And if you don't, you're not allowed to like rent or own anything within the city limits. And then they had another ordinance which basically was like this nuisance ordinance, which basically qualified calling 911 if you are a woman who is experiencing domestic violence also is a nuisance. And so you would have people who were experiencing domestic violence calling the police and you would get your occupancy permit revoked and you would essentially be kicked out of town. You were not allowed to live in that place legally. And there's a lot of this being documented. I mean, Matt Desmond looks at this in Wisconsin and, you know, he has an absolutely absurd story that he finds where basically the conversation with nuisance is between the property owner and the city and the state. So what ends up happening is that the police contact the landlord and say, hey, your tenant keeps calling the cops because she has an abusive partner. You need to figure out a way to make this stop or you'll have to evict her. And the landlord replies in email to the city official. Yeah, I advised her to get a gun and shoot him. She hasn't. So I'm going to evict her. And so when you have these types of nuisance laws and this idea that like nuisances are anything that could bother essentially upper middle class white homeowners, that includes anything from I hear someone else is experiencing abuse to, as Matt points out, parking lots. And I think that a lot of these things are unintended consequences of a legal regime that prioritizes the slight irritations of wealthy and connected homeowners over general social welfare. And as, as Matt mentioned, you're seeing a lot of this change be pushed by this hope for racial justice. It's happened in Minneapolis. You're seeing this in California. You're seeing this in Connecticut and other states across the country. You even see the Council of Economic Advisors of the White House and the Department of Housing and Urban Development couch a lot of this language in racial justice language. And it's very clearly correct when you look at the historiography that this is a massive racial justice issue. But because it's become so encoded in how we view property rights, it's now a class issue. It's now a gender rights issue when you're looking at what's happening to victims of domestic violence. It has spiraled to the point where there are so many ways to criminalize behavior to the point where the state has potentially a reasonable justification for zoning out that nuisance. Yeah, I mean, I want to critique the idea of unintended consequences a little bit because it's something that I was thinking a lot about in prepping for this episode. Because like, if you look at the macro history of decades before the Civil Rights Act, the Supreme Court said you can't do explicit racial segregation, but you can do facially neutral things that achieve the same ends. And a bunch of jurisdictions said, great, we'll do just that. Like, it casts what happens after the passage of the Civil Rights Act in a different light, right? Because it means that 
we're not discovering for the first time that facially neutral laws as a successor to explicitly racist laws can perpetuate the exact same inequities. Like that is something that could have been visible at that point. And so it, I think the further back we go in the time machine, the harder it is to not play a hindsight game. I struggled with that with this episode, just like I struggled with it with the last episode. But it is at a certain point worth pointing out that like the facts on the ground were there at the time. And so what got strategically ignored and what assumptions were being made on the part of the law's proponents that the tools they were creating would be used in good faith are worth interrogating. The other thing that I think is important is like, yeah, okay, the specific consequences of any given nuisance ordinance might not be foreseeable at the time because you haven't created the ordinance yet. But it's generally true that who gets to decide is an implicit question of all public policy. Like you were saying, you know, earlier, Jerusalem, that it kind of is incumbent on policymakers to think about what would this tool look like when wielded by people whose idea of the good or idea of what is a nuisance or whatever doesn't jibe with mine. The problem is that especially at the local level, it's really hard to abstract the policy process to that degree because so often things happen because of a very committed group of citizens who are absolutely convinced that A, their problem is the most important problem, and B, their proposed solution will solve it, that to abstract it not just to the level of like, how can we adjudicate between various stakeholders, which is often the process by which policy gets made, but also how can we future-proof this so that it doesn't create massively cascading unintended consequences for people whose definition of the good is different from ours. Like, there is a certain extent to which that's a difficult thing to do, but it also is a reasonable standard to hold policymakers to. Well, and on the subject of unintended consequences, a few months ago, I was working on a piece and I was ready to mention offhandedly that the post-World War II crackdown on rooming houses in which widows or empty nesters would like rent out spare rooms in, in their place. I was going to say that this had these like dire unintended consequences in increasing homelessness, but the American Society of Planning Officials has done this really nice thing that they should probably actually do, which is they post like their old documents up on their website, and they're invariably horrifying. And they have this 1957 report on like, why cities should crack down on rooming houses. I think intellectuals like unintended consequences stories. And so I had this idea that it was like, well, these were supposed to make living conditions better for the people living in the rooming houses, but it had the unintended consequence of pushing people onto the streets. Uh, but they actually just say, look, many rumors are real down and outers, and the atmosphere of a rooming house in which they predominate is likely to be bleak, and that hundreds of zoning ordinances have loopholes that permit group living arrangements. And so they were just like encouraging cities to get rid of these down and outers because they were just like bad people and you should get rid of them. And if you don't have them living in your town, your town's going to be better off. And there's even a sense in which that's true, right? To Dara's point about who decides for some definition of down and outers, if you have some down and outers living in your town, that creates a challenge for your social service provision versus if you have a rule that says that like only rich people can live in your town that makes life a lot easier for like your teachers and your school principals the cops have less to do like you genuinely can solve a localized problem by criminalizing poverty the problem is that like america can't solve poverty by having the country say, oh, no, you're not allowed to be down and out here, right? The down and outers go someplace else. They go to what we now have is like tent encampments in parks in a lot of American cities. And that's much worse, right? Like the intended consequence of empowering localities to sort of push out undesirable people is to create a much more intense form of the problem where people are on the streets rather than in rooming houses, a more concentrated version where they're in a handful of jurisdictions rather than spread around. And we're also with just like, it's so much harder, you know, so you're down and out, right? But like, you want to get back on your feet and do well. If you're living in a rooming house, it's like, okay, it's crowded. Like you would like to live someplace else, but you still have an address. You can wash, you know, you can go get a job, which is very challenging if you're homeless to like move into a 
better set of circumstances. You can't accumulate any possessions. It's really bad. And it comes from empowering the wrong groups of people to make decisions. Not because they're bad people, right? But because they have a parochial perspective. Like the town planning department is not interested in the nationwide impacts of these iterative policy decisions. But it's not a good system that we've created to sort of say that we have such weak property rights over housing and that determinations about who can live where and what they can build should be made on the basis of these very localized uh, considerations. But what I'm never sure about knowing the history, knowing the reality is like, how much should we emphasize the racial dimension of this versus class. Because, I mean, one thing people will say is like, look, nobody's saying that like Cliff Huxtable can't move into your neighborhood with like his wealthy family. And it's like it happens to be the case that not that many black people are that wealthy, but, you know, so much the better versus like, I don't know, it seems bad. It certainly has a disparate impact. It is facially race neutral by law for over a hundred years. And I keep like flipping back and forth on like what what good does it do to excavate this history? I think there are a couple of things here. So one is this question of what is the role of persuasion in a policy context like this, where the policy is super salient to a small group of people and like super unknown to like the vast majority of Americans that like it actually like matters. And, you know, you have contexts like in California where it's becoming a lot more salient as it becomes a much bigger problem because property prices and rents have just been rising to a point where even rich people are having trouble affording basic things. Um, So that feels to me that that changes things. But I I think I'll also just say here that what matters less is persuasion in conversations like this. And more what matters is changing where the levers of power exist. Because even if you have a situation, right, where like every individual person at the local level was equally empowered to have their say in zoning decisions, A, there are more homeowners than there are renters (laughs) in the country. And it's like 63% of people are homeowners versus like 47% are renters. And B, I think people have internalized a lot of this nuisance stuff without realizing the biggest impact of zoning laws, which is like decreasing housing supply. And it's a complicated economic story to tell to like normal people who like don't care and like shouldn't have to care about this stuff and shouldn't have to like know all this kind of stuff to have like housing provided to them. And so I think what's more important here is that you actually ensure that the structural disadvantage when you create a system where it's whether or not you show up to a zoning meeting and talk about these issues is how you get your preferences met is what's going to happen here. Because as Matt said, like, yeah, you are solving a localized problem by getting rid of this nuisance. But you can't do that across America. And what's happened is that all of the power to make sure that we're actually solving homelessness and not just like getting rid of homeless people in one part of Los Angeles is at the Los Angeles level. But the people that it harms are at the California level and at the United States of America level. Um, But there's very few things right now that policymakers find feasible to actually do at the statewide level or the U.S. level. So I think that there's like a lot of interesting questions about like what role persuasion plays here. And I think, you know, we've seen in Minneapolis and in the suburbs here that racial justice arguments have led to uh, changes in the zoning code. But, you know, even after Minneapolis has banned single family zoning, we haven't seen a bunch of like triplexes rise because there are a bunch of other ordinances that are making it hard to build these types of things. So I think when you have these kind of one off persuasion campaigns, it can be really good at centering um, the harm that's happened. And of course, on top of that, also making a policy change that affects people's lives. But at the end of the day, you can't have this like one by one. Okay, well, let's get rid of this building code and let's make sure that setbacks aren't absurd and that height limits aren't crazy. And like removing that one by one is going to be a laborious process versus making sure that states or regions have the power to just say like, okay, I don't care how you do it. You are responsible for X number of housing units being produced in your area over the Y number of years. And I think that's really the only fix here. And persuasion is going to not play a, a huge role at the individual level, but it might play some role at the official level. 
All right. I think that's well said. Happy to leave it at that. So thank you so much, Jerusalem, for joining us. Thanks to everybody out there in the listening world for joining us on this Time Machine adventure. I hope that we will have some future opportunities to use this now that we have developed the time-traveling technology. It seems like a shame to never use it again. Thanks, as always, to our sponsors, to our producer, Eric Janakis, and the Weeds will be back on Friday. 